Good morning. morning. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We are uh, studying through the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter by chapter and verse by verse within those chapters. We are in chapter 3, looking at verses 14 through 22, the church of the Laodiceans. And the topic we're going to find there is this. Jesus tells the church of the Laodiceans that he will vomit them out of his mouth unless they acquire from him certain priceless spiritual resources. The title of our message, The Hurl of Great Price. (laughs) Father, thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to gather this morning. Uh, We find it as a precious gift from you. You invited us here. We've come. You promised you would be here, Lord, uh, ministering from heart to heart. We know that when we gather, we individually are your temple, of course, but collectively, we also are the temple of God on earth. And in this holy place, Lord, made holy by your presence, we want ministry to take place. You ministering to us and us to others so that needs are met, hopes are realized, dreams, Lord, of of heaven are made more real. Lord, Some of us are doing okay. Others, uh, Lord, are are right at the edge. Meet us where we are at by your spirit and with your strength and in your power. Help us understand this word, Lord, that was written so many centuries ago in context and in the context of our own church. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Two words you never want to hear, induce vomiting. When I was a young warthog, induced vomiting was a common suggestion on labels for things you shouldn't have swallowed. We always had in the medicine cabinet an emergency bottle of Ipecac syrup. It was right next to the mercurochrome, which was right next to the iodine. Do you, do people, are they still using iodine? I haven't seen iodine in a long time. I love that stuff. I would want to get cut. So that I could, because remember, you'd pull it out of the little, it's a little bottle and it had a glass applicator and it just kind of stuck to the glass and you just rubbed it over the wound and, and it was almost like a Wolverine thing where you, you know, you could see it start to heal immediately. It was such a cool, weird color when you were a little boy, you know, you'd out there and like, oh, see my, see my mercurochrome. Now, if it was a really bad cut, I don't know, we'd go from mercurochrome to iodine. That's the bad stuff. But anyway... If you had those three miracle products, you had a good chance you'd survive your childhood. Ipecac syrup, no longer recommended. Research proved it not only ineffective, but dangerous. If you want some, I'm pretty sure the bottle of my childhood home is still in that medicine cabinet. It's near the witch hazel and the geritol. Remember geritol? You're probably too young to remember geritol. If you had iron poor blood, You would drink Geritol by the buckets. But anyway, throwing up can actually make things worse. That doesn't stop well-meaning folks from posting on the worldwide interweb the best natural home remedies to induce upchucking. Here's one. Drink Coca-Cola that has run out of its bubbles. Drink it every hour, which will make you sick and want to heave. After you drink Coca-Cola, drink mineral water as a follow-up to trigger regurgitation. So maybe the bubbles from the mineral water reconnect with molecules of Coke. I don't don't know how that works. Haven't tried this one, not recommending it. Afterwards, though, you can use the Coke to clean your battery. 
gargle with egg whites. I want to throw up just thinking about that. <laughs> this is my favorite. This I found on several sites. Expose yourself to disgusting smells. Somewhere in or outside of your house, you need to have a place where a disgusting smell can hang out. Mom, I just drank this whole bottle. Quick, get behind the garage and start breathing. I hope you're not one of those people who get nauseous just thinking about it because today is going to be rough for you. Best barfing in a movie, you ask? Well, The Exorcist, hands down. Honorable mention goes to Tom Hardy in Venom. The church of the Laodiceans made Jesus want to vomit them. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The Lord's nausea was triggered by their spiritual temperature. They were lukewarm. Jesus had not yet spewed. He was hoping he wouldn't have to. He suggested a remedy for his nausea, and that was to be zealous and repent. I'll organize my comments around two points this morning. Number one, Jesus takes your spiritual temperature. And number two, Jesus, uh, rather, you can tweak your spiritual temperature. So let's take a look at the Lord taking our temperature. And you know what? I, we've become familiar with someone taking our temperature before we're being allowed to proceed. I find that odd and invasive, don't you? Uh, I mean, imagine three years ago, obviously just a little over a year ago, but let's say three years ago, to be fair, and you walked up to an event and somebody whipped out one of those plastic guns and held it to your head to take your temperature. What in the world? This used to be America, where I could go anywhere with a fever. <laughs> you've done it. You know you've done it. You've gone to work sick. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Before the pandemic, I had to leave Walgreens one day. I was in line, and the poor lady at the checkout, she was obviously very sick, uh, and she shouldn't have come to work. But I, I, maybe she's, you know, she obviously, maybe she's a single mom. She has to work. I understand that. So I'm standing there, and she's checking somebody out, and this is, this is it. Ooh -hoo! Ooh -hoo! I left, which is my right as an American. But if you want to take my, now, if you're waiting for people to take your temperature, right? It's like, where's the temperature gun? I, I, I'm healthy. I want everybody to know. Well, Jesus takes our spiritual temperature when we gather in his name. And so verse 14, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The angel of the church is its pastor. Angel simply means messenger, and he is the most likely individual who would read aloud these, uh, uh, this letter to those who were gathered. Now, there's a subtle difference in this greeting from the previous six letters. Instead of saying the church in Laodicea, Jesus calls them the church of the Laodiceans. It might be an Easter egg, not the Cadbury kind, but the kind that is a hidden clue in a movie. The word Laodicea roughly translates into English as self-rule. The Lord addressed them as their own masters rather than as his bond servants. And so this is part of the problem that we find there. 
Jesus was going to give an eye-opening testimony about the spiritual condition of the people in this church. Before doing so, he established himself as an expert witness capable of such pronouncements. You've seen movies and TV shows where they call upon expert witnesses, and, and usually each side has its own expert witness to interpret the forensic uh, evidence. By the way, from uh, watching crime TV, I've learned, for example, that bite marks are junk science. And so when they say, oh, we lined up the bite marks, uh, not, there's a bunch of people on death row because they uh, got their bite marks wrong and now they're being released. So when you're in jail and they say that you bit somebody, say, hey, that's junk science. I'm here to be helpful. And then there's, the witnesses aren't always very reliable. Two people can see the same thing and you get two different viewpoints and, and uh, people often forget exactly what happened, especially in a situation where you need a witness, where there's something unusual happens. No one could contradict the Lord as an expert witness, no junk science in his spiritual evaluation. Jesus' testimony is from the amen. Think of it as having the final authoritative word. It, it, when Jesus testified, Amen. That's it. That's the truth. His testimony is from the faithful and true witness. As witness, he sees everything, including the heart of man, and his assessment of what he witnesses is always faithful and true. It's impeccable. It cannot be shaken. You know, the defense, one of the attorneys gets up and tries to undermine the testimony. Can't do it with Jesus because he is a faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God cannot mean Jesus was created because elsewhere we learn he is the creator. Colossae was a city in the same region. In his letter to them, the apostle Paul said this, for by Jesus all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth. And so beginning of the creation means Jesus is the origin, the originator of creation. Is this a not so subtle clue as to false teaching in Laodicea? Had some there begin to teach that Jesus was not very God of very God, but a created being? We can't say for sure, but it's a good bet. Verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. Now, we can't comment on hot, cold, and lukewarm without some enlightening background. And this is going to blow your mind a little bit, I think, but it's true. Laodicea had almost no water sources of its own. According to one document, I quote, no other city in the Lycus Valley was as dependent on external water supplies as was Laodicea. They purchased water from neighboring cities, Hierapolis and Colossae. Hierapolis, about six miles away, was known for natural hot springs. The baths of Hierapolis attracted citizens from all over the Roman Empire. Colossae was known for its cold water, Located about 11 miles from Laodicea, it was situated at the foot of Mount Cadmus, which peaked at 9,000 feet. Ice-cold, snow-fed streams rushed down the mountain into Colossae, and they would enjoy refreshing cold water as a result. One water was naturally hot at its source. One water was naturally cold at its source. By the time either arrived in Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And so now you understand a little bit more about what Jesus was talking about. Everybody in the area and in the Roman world would know what he meant. Uh, 
We normally think that being hot is something good and to be desired, whereas being cold is something bad and to be avoided. But cold can be a good thing. It was a special treat to drink icy cold water at a time before there were any means of refrigeration. I mean, when you're out, now that we're all back out in the yard weeding and getting ready for spring, uh, you know, on these hot days that are gonna come, if somebody comes out and says, hey, would you like some water? You say, sure. Would you like it cold, lukewarm, or hot? Well, some, lukewarm is okay. Cold would be preferable, right? Nice, refreshing glass of cold water. There's also a bigger picture that Jesus is drawing for them, and it's the picture of a banquet, not just drinking, but an entire banquet. Because in verse 20, he's gonna famously say he is at the door knocking to come into what? A supper. And so he's laying out this idea that he wants to have supper with the Laodiceans, including appropriately temperatured beverages, uh, but there's something wrong. And so Jesus is talking temperature in the context of sharing supper with them. So verse 16, you become lukewarm and are neither hot or cold. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Lukewarm food can become deadly. Wow, that was a great... Did you hear that or is it just me? A lot of times it's just me anymore, so let's just move on before I get in trouble. If hot food or cold food sits out too long at room temperature, it can allow bacteria to grow to dangerous levels that can cause severe illness. Think how much worse this was in ancient times. Ask Alexander the Great. He died in Babylon at the age of 33. Doctors at our own University of Maryland studied historical accounts of his symptoms and death. They say he died from typhoid fever that was caused by salmonella typhi. It can be found in raw or undercooked eggs, raw milk, contaminated water, and raw or undercooked meats. So maybe Alexander was a guy that liked his eggs a little runny. You know anybody like that? You ask for scrambled eggs, they said, no, they're, they're too overcooked. I like them a little bit runny. Makes me nauseous. When we went to communist China smuggling Bibles, we were at the Beijing Hotel, which is a dive, uh, and every morning we would order, and the Chinese people at that time didn't even pretend to want to understand you. Uh, and so we would point to things and they would bring us eggs that started off just raw and every time we'd send them back, they'd get a little bit more cooked until they were scrambled. Uh, and you know, we would say, very hard cooked, scrambled, very, very cooked eggs. And they would come and they're sloshing around on your plate. And I'm surprised that, I think I still have parasites from China, to tell you the truth. <laughs> the US Department of Agriculture calls it the danger zone. It's the range of temperatures from 40 degrees to 140 degrees Fahrenheit, in which cooked food sits out for longer than two hours. During that period, in the danger zone, bacteria can grow rapidly. I made a delicious avocado egg salad last week, if I do say so myself. Properly stored, egg salad will last for three to five days in your refrigerator. Egg salad should be discarded if left out for more than two hours at room temperature. Remember that at the next church potluck, or Thanksgiving for that matter. Grandma, you know, Marlene has been cooking that egg salad for the last three days making sandwiches out of it. it's been sitting on the counter. Maybe that's what you need to smell to vomit. But anyway, 
Other foods, you know, have to be heated to a certain temperature to kill existing bacteria. When we used to eat meat, yes, I'm a vegetarian, don't hate me. We used to eat meat, I had a meat thermometer and I was insane about getting the right to... Pretty soon though, meat would just fall apart from all the holes I put in it. <laughs> I wanted to, is, if there, is there a pocket here of 140 degrees? I don't want to die like Alexander. I believe this is what Jesus had in mind when he said they were neither hot nor cold but had become lukewarm. The Laodiceans had assumed a toxic, lukewarm temperature by being out in the world too much, by being worldly. Now, this might be a good time to address the issue of whether these folks were saved. In Laodicea, we'd say that the majority were not saved, and that shouldn't shock you. Many so-called churches are led by and attended by non-believers. Many, many formerly uh, righteous Christian churches that have over the years or centuries drifted into apostasy and are populated by folks that are not saved. I, any, there's lots of churches today who, who tell you that it doesn't matter if Jesus rose from the dead bodily. Yes, it does. Actually, actually, it does. It's a fundamental doctrine that the church is built on. And so if there, a church doesn't believe that, and if the minister doesn't preach that, they're not saved. I don't care what they think. And so there are unsaved churches. The minority who were saved in Laodicea could also be dis, uh, addressed on this way on account of their preferences for things of the world. It's possible to be a worldly Christian, to be captivated with the world and uh, you know, be carnal in that sense. You may not be doing anything sinful, but your heart is in the world. We often quickly interpret ourselves out of a verse. If this letter is only directed toward non-believers, we can read it without much interest. But we're gonna see at the end that like all six previous letters, it is for everyone who has ears to hear. And so uh, some portions of the Bible obviously written to certain groups, specific to that group, we like to keep Israel separate from the church, for example, very important. Uh, but a lot of times, you know, things like this, you say, well, these people were not believers. Well, some of them were believers and they were just worldly believers. And so there's something here for all of us. Room temperature food that has been out too long, food not thoroughly cooked makes you want to blow chunks. Jesus wanted to sup with them, but he might Ralph on account of the lukewarmness of Laodicea. We see them out too long in the world in verse 17. Here's what he meant. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Rich means rich. They had plenty of money. They had really too much money. Have become wealthy is better translated increased with goods. They used their too much money to buy more and more of this world's goods. They invested heavily in the world, not in heaven, because their hearts were in the world. Certainly the non-believers, their heart was the world, and certainly some of the carnal Christians as well. Rich people who surround themselves with the comforts of this world trust in the external rather than the eternal, and it's, begin to, it's easy to begin to think that you have need of nothing because you can solve all of your problems with money. Now, maybe we're not rich or wealthy or increased with goods. We can still want to be. The love of those things, the love of the world will just as quickly lukewarm us as actually having riches, wealth, and goods. You're familiar with eating disorder sufferers who look in a mirror and even though they are dangerously thin, 
see themselves as overweight. Jesus held up his mirror to the church of the Laodiceans to show them they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They saw themselves as rich and needing nothing, but spiritually they were blind beggars so wretched and miserable that they didn't even have proper clothing to wear. Jesus is the only expert witness on this condition of the human heart. His word is the mirror we look into to be shown and to hear his testimony. It isn't to find us guilty, but to lead us to grace. The Lord always wants to show us things to lead us further into his grace so that we will appreciate uh, what he's done for us and, and be able to spend more time with him. Now, secondly, you can tweak your spiritual temperature. The church of the Laodiceans made a classic blunder, the most famous of which is never get involved in a land war in Asia. It used to be funny. It's from the Princess Bride, by the way. Their classic spiritual blunder was thinking that worldly success, wealth, and comfort signify God's favor. It too often leads us away from him. We'll see here that the Lord meets us where we're at. We should love him for his condescension to us. Jesus spoke to the rich church of Laodicea as if he were their financial advisor. Verse 18, I counsel you, buy gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And so these people who are overwhelmed with riches and worldliness, Jesus condescends and says, I, I, I'm asking you to buy. If you have a financial advisor, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, most of you don't, but some of you do. And, but they'll sometimes counsel you to buy, right? If you're into stocks and stuff, they'll say, hey, you should buy Disney right now while it's low because it's going to go back up again. And so Jesus comes and he says, okay, these people are rich. Hey, here's what you should buy. And he gives them this list. The trouble is the things he listed could not be purchased. There are three more things you need to know about the city of Laodicea. Number one, it was noted for many banks and financial institutions. Number two, they manufactured a medicinal eye ointment there. And number three, they bred and raised sheep with unusual black wool and were noted for garments made with it. So these people deposited gold into their many banks. Maybe you follow the stock market. Me, not so much. I do own one share in Disney. My dividend last year was 98 cents. So I made 98 cents on my one share. Imagine if I had 10 shares. <laughs> I could buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks and then retch it out. But anyway, anybody here work at Starbucks? <laughs> Jesus is a gold broker. He can store up your rewards in heaven where they are safe from theft and corruption. And more than that, he says there's a gold that is refined in fire. He can make gold out of your trials. He's talking about what we might call Job gold. Job said, he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Jesus next said, buy from me white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Laodicea with its black wool was a garment district. I'm sure the Laodiceans were clothed in the finest apparel. They could afford to visit their tailors and have custom made outfits suitable for any occasion. None of their earthly garments, however, would stand a chance in heaven. They'd all be disintegrated, leaving them naked. 
The Bible uses clothing to illustrate your salvation. When you get saved, Jesus takes upon himself your filthy, inappropriate garments, and he gives you instead his robe of righteousness. It's the only garment that is heaven approved. Jesus next said, anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. A popular eye ointment known as Phrygian powder was produced in Laodicea. No amount of Phrygian powder would restore sight to the blind, but Jesus does, especially to the spiritually blind. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now, this definitely sounds like family discipline. Uh, this is something you would say of a Christian more than a non-Christian. They should be jealous, excuse me, zealous to repent, eager to and wholeheartedly turning to God and from the world. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Haters like to say that this verse should not be used for evangelism since Jesus was addressing a church. In fact, there's a lot of this on the internet, people's spiritual blogs, and it always starts similar to, you think this means this, but you're mistaken. It doesn't mean that it means this, and then you feel stupid and, uh, you know, like you, you should have known that. And so this is a popular one. Uh, they, they say, uh, you know, evangelicals use this for evangelism, but it, it's, it was never intended for the non-believer because it's written to a church. Well, I submit the church was nearly full of all unsaved people. And so he was evangelizing a church of the unsaved. It is an appropriate verse for anyone, non-believer or believer in whatever spiritual state you find yourself. If you are not a Christian, the sinless, risen, ascended Son of God sends his Holy Spirit to knock on your heart by grace freeing your will to be able to open it to Jesus. He's knock, knock, knocking on your heart's door, and that means you are enabled to answer the knocking. So if the Lord says, I'm knocking on your door, there is a corresponding enablement by the Spirit for you to open the door. There's no such thing as Jesus knocking. He says, well, I'm gonna knock on this door for a while, person inside hasn't been chosen to salvation, but I'll knock anyway. There's no way he can open it. In fact, I've barred it shut. All right, let's move on. Let's go to Gene's house. He has been chosen. I know I'm being silly, but you love it. Open the door. Don't be one of those people who says, I hear you knocking, but you can't come in. See, you do it too. As for his knocking on a believer's heart, I have no problem thinking of Jesus knocking on my heart's metaphysical door. He's knocking and it can shock me into the realization that I have kicked him out, at least temporarily while I rule over my own life. And so Jesus knocks and he will keep knocking louder at times too, each knock intended to capture your spiritual attention. Today we surveil our doors with cameras. In those days, a knock on the door would be accompanied by the knocker identifying himself. Knock, knock, it's Jesus. I thought I'd do a pop-in to let you know you're blowing it, and unless you repent, I'm going to retch. That, that's the idea here. Jesus wants to dine with you. There's a present and a future application of this dining experience. In the present, Jesus wants to have a relationship with you that can be likened to friends sitting down and conversing over a meal. In the future, at his second coming, Jesus will dine with you as his bride in what is called later in this book, the marriage supper. 
And so the, the, the picture I get here is that Jesus wants to come in and dine with and sup with the church of the Laodiceans, but it's as if all of their food is filled with disease. It all stinks and is rotten. Have you ever been to a, an event that just made you feel almost sick as a Christian? I was thinking about this after first service. Maybe a work party or some kind of a banquet. Uh, maybe you guys have never experienced this, but down in Southern California, uh, you know, after I got saved and I was working for a title insurance company, the annual Christmas party was something that you tried so hard to get out of uh, because all people wanted to do is get drunk and be weird at it. And as a Christian, it was just, it was just hurtful, uh, you know, to sit there and just see people wasting their lives. I mean, it was a great opportunity. Some of the, uh, the greatest times of evangelism I've ever had in my life haven't been as a pastor. They were when I was in those situations. And so, I mean, I knew that the Lord wanted me there, but it would just make me ill. I remember this one guy, see if I can get this story out without it taking too long, but we were at some kind of a, a dinner in a fancy restaurant. It was all the kind of heads of the company. I was some kind of phony thing called an assistant vice president at the time. And uh, this one guy, older guy, uh, and by older, I mean my age now, uh, you know, I was in my 30s or late 20s, and he, he kept like trying to hit on the waitress. She was a sweet young gal, maybe in her early 20s, and, and every time she'd leave, he'd say something derogatory about her the way unsaved men do. Uh, and so finally, I couldn't take it anymore. I said, I said, Jack, don't you have a daughter about that same age? And he goes, yeah. I go, how would you like it if people were doing that to her? Just shut up. And he did, and I felt, hey, a victory. But uh, anyway, I mean, it was, it was terrible to be out in the world. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I, I wanna come in and have fellowship with you but all you guys want to talk about is the latest this or the latest that, and you're showing off your, your black wool dress, and, and you just bought tickets here and, and all that, and there's no spiritual talk, and there's, no, there's nothing about what's really happening on a spiritual basis. And he said, it, it really makes me want to vomit sitting here with you. And so that's the deal. It's, it's a very simple, very straightforward analogy. Verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Remember, it's the Christian who overcomes, not the overcomer who becomes a Christian. And we overcome the world by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Instead of ruling ourselves, we yield to him. Jesus was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven and rewarded with a seat at the father's right hand from which he will return to rule the universe. In Colossians 3, verse 1, we learn that we have been raised with him we already share in his life and his power. Our position is with him on his throne. We will be physically raised from the dead or raptured and then rule with Jesus in the kingdom on the earth. These self-ruling, self-sufficient, miserable, poor, wretched, naked, blind people are nevertheless promised they will rule with Jesus. Not just that they might barely make it into heaven by the skin of their teeth, but that they will share a seat of honor. You didn't see that coming. I mean, we look at people like this and we say, hey, they're gonna be second class. They're gonna be serving the first class Christians, uh, you know, in heaven. But Jesus says, look, this is your condition. Repent because this is the future I have for you. What grace. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Did they listen to Jesus? Well, 
According to the Biblical Archaeological Society, and why would they lie? Here's a quote. The church at Laodicea became the seat of a Christian bishop and a Christian council was held there in the fourth century AD. Archaeologists have discovered about 20 ancient Christian chapels and churches at the site. The largest church in Laodicea called Calvary Chapel of Laodicea, <laughs> they found pieces of the sign, took up an entire city block and dates to the beginning of the fourth century. Now, I made up part of that, but the rest of it is true. Laodicea started as the church in Laodicea, but the pull of the world led them to be the church of the Laodiceans. Seems they repented and returned to their original foundation. Without sounding in any way puffed up, we are a church in, not a church of. Let's remain that way by continuing in the spirit, both personally and corporately, and by doing all that we need to do to resist the downward pull of the world. Amen?